Alice is going to come, and she's going to read for us God's Word, the passage from Luke that we'll be in this morning. Good morning, Permitter Church. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Father, you give us the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people who are gathered and who hunger and thirst for your word. Amen and amen. Back in December, I was able to go somewhere that I've always wanted to go and see something I've always wanted to see. We have longtime ministry partners in Egypt, and I had the opportunity to go visit them. And uh, the trip itself was just incredible. The things that I was, be, I was able to see and, and take in in terms of what God's doing there in Egypt was really remarkable. But of course, if I'm going to be there in Cairo, right next to the pyramids, I, I had to take some time to go over and see them, even if just for a couple of hours. And this has been on my bucket list for a while. I had seen pictures really my whole life. And uh, it's interesting, anytime you see a picture, it looks like they're out in the middle of the desert, which they are in some sense, but they're right next to Cairo. In fact, you leave the city and immediately you're there at the pyramids. I took this picture when I was there from the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza, and I was trying to capture just the immensity of this thing, um, how overwhelming it is. You can see there in the picture how small the people are and how some of these stones are as tall as some of the people. I'm 6'2", and I'm standing next to these massive stones, some of which are as, the smallest are two tons, the biggest are 15 to 16 tons. And you're standing next to just one of these, and it's overwhelming. But then you begin to consider how in the world did they do this? These were constructed in 2500 BC, 4,500 years ago. It, it's, it's really mind-blowing to begin to try to fathom how did they do this. In 1978, a group of Japanese researchers who were funded by the Japanese government, government and been given approval from the Egyptian government, they, uh, they set out to build a, a, a pyramid in the same way that they thought the ancient Egyptians might have built it. And so it, it, it included every step of the process where they went to the quarry that they think these stones were mined from or quarried from. And it's not close 
to where the pyramids sit today on top of the Giza Plateau. So they went there and using primitive tools that they think that the Egyptians would have used or something similar, they began to try to cut out these stones from these cliff sides and from these quarries and they were unsuccessful. So they ended up having to use modern technology to get these stones out. Once they had these stones out, each just being four tons, not even close to the 15, maybe 16 tons that some were or are in the pyramids today, they then had to figure out how do we transport them to the, the plateau, many miles, part of which was floating them down the Nile River. And as they began to try to move the stones across the sand, they were unsuccessful. They were trying to do it in the way that they thought the ancient Egyptians did it, but they barely moved them even centimeters. So they used modern machinery to get them to the river. And then once they got to the river, they put them on something that they thought would be how they would have transported them down the river, and it didn't work. And so they got a barge. They floated them down the Nile to the closest point to where the pyramids stand. And then they had to figure out how to get them up to the plateau. And of course, they had to use modern machinery to do that. So at every step, they failed. And then the last step was, how do we even begin to stack these? So again, using a pulley system that they thought might have been used by the ancient Egyptians, it didn't work. And so they had to use modern pulleys and cranes to begin to stack these. And even that was difficult because the pyramids at Giza are, are stacked so precisely, even lining up with coordinates north and south and the way in which the stars are aligned. And they concluded, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we don't know how to do this. We failed at every single Step. So standing at the base of these things, now since 1978, some more research has been done, and we think we, I say we as though I have a part of that, right? We think that there's new ways in which they, I have no idea, but people who are way smarter than me think they begin, are beginning to understand how they did it. But you can stand at the base of this great pyramid, and you look up, and it's truly a wonder. I mean, it's one of the ancient wonders of the world. And I could have stared at them for hours, just, just trying to take in, how in the world did this happen? I was dumbfounded and I was mesmerized. That night when we were back where we were staying, and I was thinking back on the day and thinking about the conversations we were able to have with ministers there and the work that God is doing, I was just overwhelmed. But I was also overwhelmed at what I had seen with the pyramids. And, as I was thinking about those, and I was just doing some, you know, Googling and researching on, online, just reading articles about the pyramids, not in an audible voice, but just in a check in my spirit, it's, it was like the Lord said to me, Jeff, it sure would be nice if you would marvel and wonder at what I've done for you, like you are at these rocks. I didn't feel condemned. It wasn't just, it wasn't a condemning sense from the Lord. It was just simply a reminder that, Jeff, what I have done for you in the life and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus is far more wondrous than this. Rightfully and understandably and even appropriately, we marvel at man-made things. We will go and, and plan entire vacations around man-made things. 
and we'll ooh and ah at them and we'll wonder at them, but when it comes to the supernatural work of God Almighty, we will be indifferent, we will be dismissive, we will even be completely rejecting of that thing. Rejected at every turn. And there's a piece of that that makes sense because I can look at these pyramids and I can know this happened. I don't know how it happened, but it's there. It's right in front of me. I can touch it, can feel it. And so with the Christian faith, yeah, it feels a little different, doesn't it? We can't just stand and see visibly, physically before us the risen Jesus. We can't reach out and touch the nail-scarred hands, at least not yet. And, but there were some that did, and we rely on their eyewitness accounts. And oftentimes people will say, well, it's a blind faith. You're just trusting in something that you hope happened. But there's actually evidence of the resurrection. And in fact, in the, in the passage that was just read for us, I think there's even some things in this passage, subtle as they may be, that actually begin to help us see this is something that only God could come up with. This is only something that God could orchestrate. This is only, God, only something God could construct. And it's something that only God could actually accomplish. Because if it were up to us, if it were up to mankind to come up with a story of redemption, a story of rescue for all of mankind, we wouldn't do it the way God did it. Let me show you. In Luke chapter 24, 1 through 12, I'm going to give you four wonders to behold from that Sunday morning. The first one is this. The wonder of the first witnesses. In the first three verses, this is what it says. It says, but on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, who are they? Well, if we had gone a few verses before this chapter, at the end of chapter 23, this is what we would find. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So the they at the beginning of chapter 24 is referring to these women, these women who went to the graveside and watched him be placed in the tomb that Friday evening. The women who then went home and began preparing the spices and the ointments that would be appropriate and traditional and part of the culture to anoint the body for burial, but they couldn't finish that job because the Sabbath came at nightfall, and so they had to wait to come back and do it on Sunday morning when Sabbath ended. But the thing that I want you to marvel at and be in awe over that you may not be or think is a very big deal, but it actually is, is that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. We, we kind of, we know who some of these women are when we look later in this passage that we'll see in just a moment, but then also when we look at the accounts of Matthew and Mark and John, we begin to see who some of these women are. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's Mary's sister, Salome. It's Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And Joanna, I wish there was a Mary to connect with Joanna, but there's not. But the, the, all these Marys and then Joanna. But the, these are the five women that we know were there. But it, it even says in this passage later, and the other women. So we don't know how many, but it could have been quite a few women who are showing up at the gravesite when Jesus is placed in it. But even before that, who are at the crucifixion, 
who are walking with him every step of the way. Now, why is this important? Why is this something to marvel at, to, be, uh, to wonder over? Well, here's why. In, first century Roman, in the first century Roman Empire, women had not just small status, they had no status. No status whatsoever. So if you're going to come up with a belief system and anchor it entirely upon this one guy rising from the dead, it would be not just foolish, it would be very idiotic, stupid to hinge it all on the witness in the context of the culture of that day that would be carried by women because the men of that day are going to immediately dismiss it. If we're going to come up with a plan, if we're going to come up with a salvation plan of redemption, we're not going to entrust it into the hands of those that have no status in the empire. We're going to say, well, the most important of men need to carry this. The most important of men need to be the ones who first see the empty tomb and take the word back. You know, at every turn, if you're familiar with the Bible, you start seeing this over and over again. At every turn, God surprises us. He doesn't do things the way that we would do them. He doesn't write stories the way that we would write them. He doesn't make the characters that we would make the main characters the main characters. He demonstrates time and time again that the nature of his kingdom is one that is very counterintuitive and countercultural. It's upside down, it's different, it's not what we would expect. I love the way that one of my favorite biblical commentators, one that I quote often, the way he says it, his name's William Hendrickson. He says this, notable women were these and this for at least three reasons. With the exception of John, none of the other disciples who belong to the group of, of 11 is reported to have been present at Calvary, at the crucifixion. But these women were present. They displayed rare courage. So, so 10 of the disciples, John is the only one that we know was at the cross with Jesus in the, in the hours of his greatest need. 10 of his closest followers, the apostles, the ones who had given up everything to follow him, they ran, they dispersed in fear. They weren't with him, but these women were. He goes on to say, we are distinctly told that there are women who followed him from Galilee to Jerusalem and had been in the habit of ministering to his needs. They had given evidence of hearts filled with love and sympathy. They were faithful followers of Jesus. But as I mentioned before, Hendrickson says this, being witnesses of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection appearance, they were qualified witnesses of the facts of redemption on which, don't miss this, under God, the church depends for its faith. The testimony of the resurrection is carried by people who in that context had no status. Isn't that beautiful? It's not how we'd write it, but it's how God writes it. He gives extraordinary value to women in his kingdom. He places them in an extraordinary status in the, in the narrative of the resurrection, and that's something to wonder at. 
to stand and stare at. But they weren't perfect. Because the second thing that we can wonder at is that they were perplexed, and they really shouldn't have been. We wonder at, the, at their perplexity. It tells us next that in verse 4 it says, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, presumably angels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus had told his disciples, including these women who would have heard, he had told them no less than three times. We know of three times in the scriptures where it is verbatim told to us, but it was probably even more than that that wasn't recorded. Where he said blatantly, word for word, I will be arrested, I'll be given over into the hands of sinful men, I'll be crucified, and on the third day I will raise, I will rise. And every time that that's recorded for us in Scripture, the disciples respond with confusion. What are you talking about? I don't know what you mean, Jesus. And we hear that and we go, how could they not understand that? It's pretty clear. Why would these women, if they know that Jesus had promised that at least three times, why would they show up to a tomb and it's empty and be surprised and go, this is confusing? Here's why. Because the expectations of what the Messiah would be and what he would do were very different than what the Messiah is and came to do. Their expectation was fully set on, because of ways in which they had misinterpreted and misimplied Old Testament prophecy about the Savior, about the Christ. Their expectation was that when this Messiah shows up, that he's going to usher in his in his kingdom, ultimately by overthrowing Rome and restoring back to the Jewish people their rightful kingdom and all of its splendor and glory that they had under David and Solomon, but even more now that it's under the reign of the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the, the lineage of David. And so when Jesus says things like, I'm going to be arrested and handed over to sinful men and crucified and raised on the third day, they, they don't it's not that they don't understand necessarily, it's that they don't have a category for it. The Messiah can't die. You, you, how, can you, how can you overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom to us that we haven't had united and glorious since the days of Solomon, which was 500, over 500 years previous, even more, really 900 if you consider both southern and northern Israel. How can you do that if you're dead and this rising thing, I don't really get it. And so they were confused and they didn't understand. Even the night before, the night before his crucifixion, Monday, Thursday, as we call it now, they're in the upper room with Jesus and, and uh, he's doing weird things. He's washing their feet and they don't understand that. And then he's taking this Passover meal that had been celebrated for generations and generations and generations and he's doing it differently and he's taking cups that were ordinarily about this and he's making it about them and he's about him and he's taking bread that would ordinarily be about this part of the Passover and he's making it about his body and his blood and they're going, okay, I'm not fully following here, but you know what they're doing in the context of that? 
At some point in the mill, it tells us that they argue about who among them is going to be the greatest. And it's not, hey, when Jesus dies tomorrow and then raises on Sunday and ushers in his unexpected, unthinkable, immeasurable kingdom that is spiritual in nature now, but when he returns later on and it's a physical, eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth, which of us is going to be closest to Jesus? That's not the context. The context is, hey, I think, I think this is all happening because tomorrow he's going to start his rule and reign in Jerusalem and he's going to kick the Romans out and we're eventually going to end up in Rome and who gets to sit at his right hand after he's put Caesar under his foot? They just don't get it. And so these women are perplexed. But these angels say to them, remember, remember what he said to you when he was in Galilee with you and he said to you that this is going to happen and I'm going to raise on the third day. And these women, to their credit, immediately went, oh, yes, I remember. And so what happens next? It says that not only are they the first witnesses of the resurrection, they're the first carriers of the good news of the resurrection. Because verse 8, it says, they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. So they're more than just 11. There's a whole host of those who had followed Jesus who were hunkered down, afraid, thinking we're going to be killed next. They're not expecting the resurrection at all. So much so that the third thing that we wonder at is that we wonder at the disciples' unbelief. Because look at their response. Peter again, uh, 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 sorry, Luke again wants us to know who these women are. He says in verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them told the, these things to the apostles. Watch the apostles response. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. We followed him for three years. We watched him do all that he does. We've seen him perform miracles. We've seen him usher in the kingdom and the nature of his kingdom. He's shown us that it's about humility and sacrifice and selflessness. And when the culmination of the, of the entrance of his kingdom comes to earth through the power of his resurrection, they don't believe it. Unbelief has always been the biggest struggle of the human heart from the very beginning. It's what plagued Adam and Eve. It's what plagues us. God does something. He tells us something. He accomplishes that which he tells us. He gives us and he gives us and he gives us grace upon grace upon grace and love upon love upon love and mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And we don't believe him. We're no different than the apostles. And in some ways, maybe that brings some relief. I'm not abnormal. My struggle is common to man. In other ways, it breaks us, does it not? To realize that the one out of sheer love and mercy and grace who came to conquer our greatest enemy is the one that I struggle to believe actually did it. It's interesting. Their unbelief is actually really interesting. 
If, there was, if this were a tale spun by mankind, the disciples wouldn't have been so shocked by the resurrection. Because think about it. One of the very first theories, one of the very first stories that was circulated, we can read about it in Matthew 28. One of the very first stories that was circulated was that, that, the, Jews, uh, that the Jews circulated was that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus, that somehow they had overcome the guards in the night. Somehow they had moved the stone and taken the body of Jesus. Why? Well, because they had given all to follow this man, and now he's dead. So they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to be seen as foolish. And so to save face, they steal the body. But if that were true, then their doubt and unbelief makes no sense. Hendrickson, Hendrickson, again, I'll quote him. He says this, what makes the Easter story so convincing is that the disciples of Jesus did not at all expect Jesus to arise from the dead. They were as shocked and doubtful as anyone could be. But Peter, good old Peter, the ever curious one, the ever brave one, often speaks before he thinks one, he takes off. He runs to the tomb just to make sure. Maybe 1% chance this actually happened. And so he runs to the tomb. We learn from John's account that John's with him. John probably didn't appreciate that, or Peter probably didn't appreciate that John says in his account that he outran Peter. (laughs) But they get there, and John tells us what they see. We learn from this text, we learn from Luke, that it says this, it says, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. So he sees linen cloths in there, but John says this about what they see. It says, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And then he gives us this little nugget. He says, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. Interesting, right? What Peter and John saw in the tomb was they saw things in order. They saw the death cloths not just still there, but even the face linen folded up. What do we make of this? Doesn't really add up because, again, some of the things that people tend to believe about what really happened is that, again, the disciples stole the body. Well, if you're going to steal a body, are you going to strip it first? And then, no, 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 you're going to take the body and get out of there quickly. Others circulate the story that an enemy of Christ pillaged the body, perhaps. Even still, even still, would, would you take the time to fold up the face cloth? There's many stories that have been circulated, but this doesn't make sense. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, lingering in that tomb after he began to breathe again in newness of life, in his resurrected body, it's almost that he, he took off the death clothes as if to say, I have order and power over death. I'm going to take the time to fold this cloth and lay it because I will never be here again. If this were a tale spun by man, the, order, the, the orderly nature of the tomb makes no sense. But look what it says last. Very last thing we're told in this passage is Peter went home marveling at what had happened. Peter ran to the tomb confused, 
He walked home marveling. You know, it's always good, in my opinion, and I love to do this, the way my brain works, is to try to just imagine being there. Try, try to imagine being Peter. What exactly are you marveling over in that moment? In those steps that you're taking home, seeing what you've just seen, remembering, beginning to remember the things that Jesus said, and dots beginning to appear in your brain that are slowly but surely connecting. What was he marveling at? Yes, he was marveling at the resurrection, but what else perhaps? Well, what does this mean is probably what he's asking. And just for a second, my mind goes to, oh my goodness, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, this is so much better than what I even thought Jesus came to do. I thought Jesus came to overthrow what I was assuming was my greatest enemy, which is Rome, but he, he didn't come to overthrow Caesar. He came to overthrow the serpent. It's not that he came to deal with my greatest enemy that's out there. He came to deal with my greatest enemy that's in here, sin and death in the grave itself. He, he, he didn't come for what I thought he came for. It's so much better. And, and I think there could have been this moment where Peter's taking these steps and light bulbs are going off and dots are potentially being connected. And I can see him, of course, this is all speculation, but go with me there, where he stops mid-step at one point and even perhaps mouths and says out loud, this changes everything. If Jesus really is risen, if he, if he really did defeat death, then this changes everything. But because that means that based on what I'm remembering now of what Jesus taught and the nature of his kingdom and following him and, and the way in which that if we follow him, then we become like him. And if we become like him, that means we're united to him in his death and in his resurrection, which means that everything that is his is mine not based on anything that I do, but based on this finished work. And, and if that's true, that means that his resurrection is my resurrection, which means that my greatest fear for, for my life and the greatest fear for your life is now stripped of all of its power. Death has no sting. It's been swallowed up in victory over the resurrection of Jesus. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And if this is true, and Jesus, and therefore me through Christ in me, if I am resurrected with him, this changes everything. It's, it's, it's to say it like this. You can't wonder at the resurrection of Jesus and walk away unchanged. I can stand at the foot of those pyramids all day and I can marvel at them and then I can walk away and I can say, what's for dinner? But I can't stare at the empty grave and I can't see the glory of Jesus in his resurrected reality and walk away the same. I can't stay indifferent. I can't keep being dismissive. It changes me to the core, just like it did Peter. Peter lives the rest of his life attesting to the resurrection of Jesus. 
even to the extent that he would die the same death of Christ on a cross. But as legend tells us, when he was nailed to that cross, he said, turn me upside down. I don't wanna, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way of my Jesus. Which as C.S. Lewis very brilliantly points out, if it were all a lie, if Peter knew it wasn't true, who in their right mind dies for a lie? The resurrection changes everything. I want you to entertain the thought with me that the resurrection of Jesus is not a tale spun by mankind to make us feel better and to give us some crutch to lean on that makes us feel like the afterlife might be true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is constructed by a loving God to save us, to rescue us from sin and death and the grave and unite us to him. Let me close with this. One of my favorite artists that I love listening to, especially this time of year, is a guy named Andrew Peterson. If you like singer-songwriter, folky kind of vibes, then he's your guy. He wrote, a, he wrote a couple of albums, Resurrection Letters, Volume 1 and Volume 2. He has a song in it called Rise Up. I love these lyrics. It says this, every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that, st- that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And when the stars come crashing to the sea and when the high and mighty fall on their knee, when you see the sun descending in the sky, the chains of death will fall around your feet and you will raise up with Christ. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. Do you believe it? Father, I pray that you would give us strength to believe. Give us faith. Not some unfounded faith, some blind faith, but a faith that is centered on on truth. Jesus, we believe with all our hearts that you did rise from the dead and that that changes everything. Lord, I pray for the ones who are here, who are listening online, whatever capacity they're watching and listening, where unbelief has marked their life. I pray that by your grace, today would be the day that belief marks their life. And that Jesus, you would do to us what you did to Peter. You change us, make us new. Think about all the people in this room and in various places who have lost loved ones, who are dead in Christ. What sure hope we have, (laughs) what joy we have that death does not have the last word, that we will see them again, that they will, the dead in Christ will rise. Oh God, give us faith. 
Help us to see just as clearly as we would look at a pyramid in Egypt. May we see your face resurrected, full of life. Do the work that only you can, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.